Tonight we're going to be talking about the wise men. So as we continue in our characters of Christmas, um, it's interesting that I'm sure each of us at some point in our lives has either seen a church Christmas pageant or have even been in one, you know, actually played a part in one. And in all these pageants, one thing, one of the most enduring symbols is always the wise men, you know, and the coming in with their camels. You know, it's interesting. One staple growing up in South Florida was always the Christmas pageant that they had at the First Baptist Church of Fort Lauderdale. And now, unfortunately, after 36 years, it's actually been canceled and they have no idea or even if they're ever going to put it on again. And if you've never seen it, you got to understand this was definitely no normal, ordinary church program. Um, it was definitely an amazing program to see. It was full of live animals and performers. And it, it amazed me seeing the wise men come in with live can camels with them adorned in their satin gowns. And, you know, like I said, it was no ordinary entrance and it was no ordinary pageant. And, you know, we see the wise men in the nativity sets. We see them on Christmas cards. You see them, you're going to see them all over Facebook page pages. And it's interesting, even on the door to my house, there's a cross that says, wise men still seek him. And what's funny is we really don't know, you know, we know very little about the wise men. And more accurately, you know, a lot of what we know is basically wrong. It's, it's not really correct in what, what we see um, or what we, what we have made them out to be. So tonight we're going to take going back and take a look at the wise men in this series, The Characters of Christmas. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to go ahead and get your Bible. And um, like I said, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 and verses 1 through 12. So let's go ahead and begin reading. And it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod he had, uh, when, he, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for your young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. 
when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. Amen to that. Amen. So as we continue and we we look forward, um, I don't want you to worry that I'm going to spoil your Christmas or maybe the memories that you've had at Christmas, you know, in the nativity scene by pointing out the historical inaccuracies of the stories, um, because we've all grown up with these stories and I don't want to do that. However, I do think it's important that, that we as Christians know more about these traveling mag magi. And, you know, there's been a lot of speculation throughout church history, and mainly because the Bible is somewhat vague on the details. You know, the word wise man in our English translations is from the word magos. And magos typically means something like, um, those who have wisdom through investigation and interpretation of the movements of the heavenly bodies were basically what we would call today astrology. Um, and Matthew tells us they came from the east. And many have speculated that perhaps they may have came from Persia. And it would actually make sense if they did come from Persia, but we really can't be sure about that. And many in the east were actually watchers of the stars and often divining special meaning or even purpose from reading what the stars would say. And we have to understand they could have also been from Babylon. Remember, the, the Jews were exiled in Babylon for a long time. And even in Daniel chapter 2, verses 2 and 10, he mentions wise men as astrologers or Chaldeans who came to help the king interpret the dreams and his visions. So... It's really not too hard to really believe that someone with the stature of Daniel um, may have had some type of influence for several generations of, e of the Eastern intellects during that day with the fact that he was the one who was able to interpret the dreams of the king and the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans were unable to do it. So it's very possible, and you know, we all know the story of Daniel that they very well, he may have made an impact for years to come. And that could be where these, uh, the wise men actually came from was actually from Babylon. Um, the question then comes was, was there actually three of them? You know, and, you know, we all know the famous uh, hymn, We Three Kings. And it seems to indicate that maybe there was three of them. But I'm really not sure that there was actually three. And I think sometimes we get the idea that there's three of them due to the three gifts that were offered. But, you know, that's probably just gifts that were presented by an entire entourage. And I think a lot of times we get caught up on that number three, which we really don't need to be caught up thinking it was just three wise men or three mad, maga, mad guy that came to see him. You know, and it's really highly unlikely that there were that there was only three of them, it was probably a lot more. And when you think about the way Matthew describes it, they caused um, such a stir when they came into Jerusalem that it would have had to be more than just three people. So I figure it was probably a whole caravan 
of quite a few people that actually came in that we think of as the three wise men. And ultimately, they were not kings. Um, they were prominent and influential religious leaders from the East, but they actually weren't kings. But I can tell you what is clear to us is that the Magi were earnest in their desire to find the king of the Jews. You know, they combined their knowledge of Old Testament scriptures with the reliance of their astrology and to really find out and know that, hey, the king of the Jews has been born. We need to come see them. And of course, we do know that scripture speaks strongly against looking at the stars for meaning. Um, but here we get to see how God is meeting these seekers right where they're at. He was utilizing his power over the heavenly bodies to direct them to his son. And so it doesn't mean that the Bible condones astrology, but I think what it does show us is that God is willing to meet those who generally seek him. And you think of it, think of ourselves for a minute. Um, think of where we were when God met us, you know, and I'm sure like me, none of us were theologically sound when we first met Jesus. We didn't know the whole theology. We didn't understand everything that was going on. But yet God met us right where we were at. And we see that with the wise men is they may be doing something that the Bible doesn't agree with, with the astrology, but God used that to bring them to Jesus. And I think a lot of times we need to understand that we can do the same thing. Use things that aren't churchy to bring people to Jesus. And, you know, you think about if God can meet a seeking sinner with impure thoughts and beliefs, you know, right where there are, right where we're at or right where we were at and point us to Jesus, that's an amazing thing. And, and you know, need to make sure we glorify God for doing that. You know, now we got to, you know, consider the tools that God, um, God used in this story to let the world know about the birth of Jesus. You think about the entire universe was at God's disposal in announcing the gospel. And as we talked about on Sunday in Luke, you know, we saw that flash mob of angels show up and how the glory of the Lord was shown around all the shepherds and how God brought the good news to them. And in Matthew, we see how God uses a star to point the Magi toward Bethlehem. So it's not unusual for God to use different ways and different things to point people towards the Messiah. And really, if the story, if you think about it, it has a connection with the Old, with the old Testament. And there's a story that most of you probably heard, never thought about it connecting with this, and it's found in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And it's about a prophet named Balaam. And he's got a talking donkey. And if you think about it, God asked Balaam to deliver three blessings to his people. And one of those, the final message in that, contained these actual words in Numbers 24, verses 16 through 17, where it said, The utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with the eyes wide open, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy the sons of Tumult. 
You know, some speculate that this is actually a coincidence and perhaps a comet may have actually been in the sky at the same time. And perhaps a comet did actually lead the wise men to Bethlehem. But there's no doubt here that this was God who had prepared, who had appeared to the Jews in a pillar of fire and a cloud to his people. He opened up the heavens just to point the lost to Jesus and to get them to come to Jesus. And all of God's creation was at his disposal to tell his story. You know, King David in describing the joy that one day would cause the universe to announce the son of David born in the city of David in Psalm 19 verses 1 through 5 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God and the ferment shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. And as I was doing some research on this, I came across a quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon. And I really liked the way that he wrote down how, how the Magi were led to Jesus and I really think it's, uh, it's, it's worth listening or hearing what uh, Charles Spurgeon had to say. And what he said was, He was born to, of lowly parents, laid in a manger, and wrapped in infant cloth. But the principalities and powers in the heavenly places are in motion. First an angel descends to proclaim the advent of a newborn king, but the activity was not confined to the spirits above, for in the heavens above the earth, something began to stir. A star is sent on behalf of all the stars, as if it were the envoy of all the worlds to represent them before their king. This star was put into commission to await the Lord, to be his herald for men far away, and to be God's usher to con conduct these men into Christ's presence." And I just think it's, you know, when you really think about what Spurgeon said, it, it's so true. And, and as you think about this moment, when the star first appeared to those seeking you know, the Magi from the East, the infant son of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who holds the universe in his hands, directed the stars to draw people to himself. And this truly, I think, shows us the love of God. And oh, how he loved us and, and he shows us through all his creation. And really, no matter where you're at right now in your life, if you're missing that hope and joy to, of the Christmas season, know that God leveraged the entire universe to shout his message of love to draw people to him, which is actually what we see at the beginning of this story. You know, although I don't believe that these men were actual kings, but in this passage from Matthew, um, they are kings, and I believe it is Matthew's point in including this in his telling of the birth of Jesus. You see, Luke emphasizes Jesus as a servant, but Matthew emphasizes Jesus as a king. And the beginning of Matthew actually opens with the genealogy of Jesus, establishing him as the rightful heir to the throne of David. And it is here that we 
we see Matthew set up a contrast between Herod and Jesus himself. And I think the prominent and wealthy wise men traveled far and wide, and they didn't travel to sit at the feet of the one at the throne in Jerusalem, but to bow at the infant who was inside a house in Bethlehem. And the star from heaven didn't point them to Herod, but it pointed them towards Jesus. So I think Matthew is telling us that true worshipers worship the true king. And while most of Israel slept in this spiritual, you know, lethargy, and even those who knew the scriptures, the scribes and the chief priests, uh, they were actually more afraid and more fearful of Herod than they were of God. And you see, the, these men um, had the faith to worship the one who deserved to be worshipped, and that was Jesus, not Herod. And I think the presence of of men and outsiders and Gentiles bring us the confirmation of God's promise of a Messiah who would not only be king of the Jews, but the Messiah of all nations. And just like Valerie with your question, Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom not just for the insiders, um, but it's for all people. And in fact, many insiders were actually the most resistant to his message. And we even, unfortunately, today we see this. Um, a lot of us who are mostly churched are often those who are blinded by our own self-righteousness that we really can't see the gospel in action. And it's often those who seem far from God um, that God draws into himself and is able to use the gospel in different narratives and, and use all of his creation to bring people to him. And I think a lot of times we miss that once we become, you know, churched and you know, I'm not saying all of us are self-righteous, but I think it's something that we miss sometimes. We forget the day of our salvation. We forget the day that, you know, God just woke us up and lifted us up off the ground. And I think it's something that we need to remember all the time. And if anything, it should give us a pause um, when we begin to think about the gospel. It's not only for people who look like or come from the same backgrounds or even think like us. The truth is we were outsiders. We were outsiders and God extended his gospel message to us. You know, we're part of the Gentile nations who were the furthest from God and we should thank him for uh, his promise. It wasn't for a certain ethnic group. It wasn't just for the Jews, but that his kingdoms for all nations, all tribes, all tongues, you know, it's for everybody. And I think a lot of times we need to pray that our church can actually reflect this reality as we seek the lost just the way that God sought us. So as we continue, the name wise men um, is a term that has uh, most stuck to these mysterious magi and perhaps is just as well. You see, for their wisdom wasn't because of their intellect or maybe their knowledge of the stars, but it was in their willingness to know where the true source of wisdom was. And notice their wisdom wasn't from the religion of the East. It wasn't discovered in Jerusalem where they, where they thought the king of the Jews would actually be. It wasn't even among the religious leaders who should have joined them on their quest. The true wisdom was found at the feet of Jesus. You know, imagine this scene in Bethlehem. Matthew tells us that after a fruitless inquiry in Herod's temple, the star that had risen in the east suddenly appeared again and leading them to the exact house where Mary and Joseph 
and the now infant Jesus lived. You know, understand, contrary to all of our nativity scenes and all of the Christmas pageants, Jesus was not a baby when the mag Magi showed up, and he was no longer in the manger. You know, judging from Herod's message and his crew wanting to kill all the males, um, we can assume that Jesus was probably about two years old at this time. And even though the, the wise men missed the birth, it didn't make their journey of worship any less significant. You know, they had scanned the skies and they poured through the, the ancient text that they had and they plotted through the desert and made their way over mountaintops. They knocked on doors, they tiptoed into temples. These men, their entourage, rode and walked and climbed their way from their home to a place so completely foreign to them. And yet the journey of the wise men pales in comparison of what Christ did for us and the one that they went to praise. Because when we think about everything that Christ did for us, it kind of tells you why the Magi's response was one of worship and exaltation of Jesus. You know, think about this. These were the men of the world. They were wise and they were cultured. They were sophisticated in every way. But they came expecting a young king on a throne. They expected someone surrounded by servants and royalty. But what they found was just a poor family in an otherwise quiet neighborhood. You know, to the average onlooker, unfamiliar with the ancient prophecies and unaware of the guiding star, this was all for naught. It, it made zero sense. But to those who, whose hearts were open to God's leading, who were truly seeking Jesus, they saw what the prophets predicted what the angel serenaded, and what Mary understood. Their toddling in a dirty tunic was the Son of God. And so these prestigious you know, men dropped everything, and they offered the only right response to Jesus, and that was worship. You know, think about it, the very sight of this. It's, it's, just, it's full of contradictions. It makes no sense. Here a young child receiving worship from royalty. You know, the wealth, the wealthy bowing down to an impoverished. And yet in this upside down nature, we see the kingdom of God. In that moment, the real power was not in the wealthy uh, coffers of these rich rulers. It was not in the halls of Herod's palace. It was in the infant, God incarnate, standing before them. And so they bowed in reverent, real, true worship. And remember, Jesus even later says that it's impossible for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God in Matthew 19, 24. And when you think about this, this is because money and power can become idols um, that blind us to our vulnerabilities and need for our saving faith. But Jesus would also say that with God that all things are impossible in Matthew 19, 26. So here we have the wealthy and the connected um, and powerful, drawn by the Spirit of God into humility that causes them to be brought low in worship of the Almighty God. They had followed a star, and now they worship the one who hung the stars in the sky. You know, so basically, in a sense, this journey required not just the Eastern Magi, but anyone who's in to enter the kingdom of heaven. God resists the proud, and the Bible repeats this over and over again, but dispenses his grace to the humble. So regardless of the size of our bank account, how big our house is or how big a car may be, 
whether you grew up in the slums of the city or on Broadway, to know Jesus is to bow and become and low to recognize our own sinness and our own vulnerability to receive God's grace and to receive it through everything. Yes, exactly. He was no ordinary baby. You know, and, the, and as we look at this, even the Bible, the Bible says one day every knee, everyone will be a worshiper. But unfortunately, those who have resisted Jesus, it's going to be a little bit too late. You know, every knee will bow one day, but the truly wise bow and worship while there's still time. And, you know, I really believe that this Christmas season, season we should meditate on the depth of the worship you see in these wise men. You know, I think Matthew includes this story here as a way of letting us see how true worshipers worship the king. So if you really think about it, think about the wise men's response. The first thing they did was they sought. They sought the truth by following the star and reading of the ancient prophecies. So they, they sought out Jesus. I think they also obeyed. They obeyed the voice of the angel who told them not to return to Herod. You know, so they listened to God even though they really didn't know God. And they bowed. They bowed at the sight of Jesus. They bowed and they worshiped Jesus. And then they gave. They gave precious gifts as an act of devotion and as an act of worship. You know, and and there's there's not a cheap version of worship, you know. And this definitely wasn't either. And it wasn't a casual event. It was a costly worship. And I'm afraid sometimes that our worship of Jesus um, gets too saturated in culture. And it's often, you know, just flimp it. This is what we do. You know, we sing songs without excitement. You know, all too often we just approach a weekly service with an inner eye roll of, well, I'm doing my duty. I'm in Sunday. You know, I came to church, I'm in Bible study. But we got to understand if Jesus is the true king, and if he is indeed the fulfillment of the covenant promises of Israel, and he is the light of the world who saves people from their sins, then I think he's worthy of all of our praise, of our whole selves, our bodies, our minds, and our souls, that we should worship him in spirit and in truth in everything that we do. You know, it's interesting. There was a 5th century, what they call a saint. His name was a Chromatius. And he wrote this about what Matthew wrote. He said, Let us now observe how glorious was the dignity that attended the king after his birth. After the Magi, in their journey, remained obedient to the star, for immediately the Magi fell to their knees and adored the one as Lord. There in his cradle... They venerate him with offerings of gifts. Though Jesus was merely a whimpering infant, they perceived one thing with the eyes of their bodies, but another with the eyes of their mind. The lowliness of the body he assumed was discerned, but the glory of his divinity is now made manifest. A boy he is, but it is God who is adored. And I think a lot of times we got to remember that where I think, yeah, you know, we people get caught up on baby Jesus. And yes, as much as we celebrate Christmas, Christmas does not matter without Easter. If he does not go to that cross and die for our sins and raise again so that we may have life, 
Christmas is just another day, you know, and, and I think in, in this journey, it's, it's no less important of our worship. Um, we need to, to, you know, God calls us to be true worshipers, to gather and to lift up praise to the King of the Kings. The wise men offered a costly worship. These men gave lavish, expensive gifts. Um, and there's been a lot of speculation throughout church history for the meaning of the gifts. And of course, we don't actually know what they mean, but here's some ideas that maybe may provoke you a little bit. You know, it's been said that the gold was a symbol of his wisdom or a symbol of wisdom and that the frankincense is a symbol of prayer offered toward God and the myrrh as an offering of our bodies as a living sacrifice, as in Romans 12, 1 and 2, of both devotion of mind, body and soul. And you also have some that say perhaps the gold represents Jesus' kingship, the frankincense, his deity, and the myrrh, his humanity. And I will tell you, as, as for the gift of myrrh, it's, it's pretty interesting to note that myrrh is what was actually offered to Jesus as a painkiller as he agonized on the cross, and he refused it in Mark 15, 23. It was also used as an embalming fluid or basically during his burial in John 19, 38 through 42, as they came to prepare the body. So it makes you wonder, is this one of the offerings, maybe a foreshadowing of the suffering and the death Jesus would someday endure for our sinners? You know, you could see where the story just plays out through it all. And, you know, we, we can't be too dogmatic about the meaning of the gifts. I mean, we could think all day about what we think it is or different things. But the one thing that we can be sure of is true worship involves giving. And I think often in the church we are hesitant to really talk about things like tithing and giving. Um, but giving should be as a natural overflow of our hearts the, for the thankfulness that for what Jesus has done for us. You know, and, and we see, you know, no one forced the Magi to give. They did it willingness because the Spirit of God loosened it from their hands and from their possessions. And giving doesn't get you to Jesus. That, you know, everyone needs to understand that. But it is a surefire sign that you know Him. You know, and I believe this is one of the reasons why we as Christians can nevertheless be joyful um, gift givers this time of the year. You know, we can give gifts to each other and to work, you know, all for the Lord and as a celebration of what Christ has given to us and what he's done for us. And not out of the commercialization that, you know, the world's made Christmas, you know, and there's really no reason to be cranky about opening presents. What I enjoy seeing is the glow and like growing up, seeing the glow of my children's faces when they open up a present or even the glow of the grandchildren, you know, when they call me up or FaceTime us and say, hey, look what we got for Christmas. You know, because we received a blessing that we're able to pass on and bless our own kids and our grandkids, you know, and understand our king has come and his joy overflows from our hearts to our hands and into the lives of others. So we need to be willing to go ahead and give that to others just as it was given to us. And yes, exactly. You know, after seeing Jesus, I'm sure the wise men's lives were changed forever because I know after meeting Jesus myself, my life has been changed forever. You know, we, we see the fulfilling of the prophecy 
throughout God's word. And as we're in this Christmas season and through the life of Christ, we get to see just all the prophecies that came came through. And yeah, it, it does put us in awe. It, I mean, times in awe, I just can't believe what God's done in my life. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we're able to come together. And even though technology may make us a little behind uh, what I'm saying and what they're hearing, Lord, at least your word never returns void. And Lord, we thank you for that. And as we continue through this Christmas season and looking at the characters of Christmas, Lord, may, may your name just be glorified through it all. And may each of us have something to take out each and every week. And that we can learn from each of the different characters in your Christmas story to make a change in us so that we can ultimately change the world around us. Lord, I ask that you continue to be with those um, who are listening and those who may watch this online or listen later. And Lord, that you may continue to bless us and Lord, that you would just continue to provide all of our needs. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a blessed week. I will see you guys Sunday. Some of you I won't see until next Wednesday, but y'all have a blessed week. Remember, Jesus loves you and so do I.